0: Okay, we're now moving on to a uh, fundamental topic in parenting, and today's year we're going to move from some stuff that was a little bit more theoretical to a very practical parenting tip that will be at the core of a lot of what you do as parents, and that is the topic of motivation. When we talk about motivation, we have to understand what exactly is motivation. When we when we say, I want to motivate someone. So what does motivation mean? So motivation, we're going to be really precise in our terminology here so that you guys can uh, really hop onto this. Motivation is the will to act. And while that may seem very simple at first, I think that you're going to see that that small definition is going to be critical in terms of how we parent our children. So if motivation is the will to act, so then what we need to do as parents, if we want to motivate our children, is we have to tap in to the inner will of a person. That's no small feat. And in tapping into that inner will, we need to channel that inner will. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. Let's unpack it, okay? So... Remember, let's go back to the basics. We are involved in goal oriented parenting, right? We're parenting towards a particular mission. And the mission is that our children should be the next generation of observant Jews who will fulfill the godly mission. Now, at the core of that is do I, the child, want to do that? Okay? And as parents, what we are trying to achieve is trying to tap into the will in order to channel the will that the child should actually want to do it. Now, it goes without saying that that's obviously going to be mission critical, because if the child doesn't want to do it, then ultimately they won't do it. And Some children figure this out sooner, and some children figure this out later, but the child if he, let's say, figures out that there's nothing really his parents can do to him, so then the child is going to say, as soon as the parents are gone, or even if the parents are there, since I don't want to do this, I'm not going to accept this mission upon myself. And that's, when, it, when a child decides to go off the derech, so to speak, what that, what that means is, I, I don't value this mission. This is not what I want for myself. This is not what I want for my life. And because it's not what they want for themselves or for their life, so we've we've failed in imparting the entire goal of parenting to begin with, which is to make sure that this child will continue the Jewish mission. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So having said that, Daniel, will get to you in one second, there are going to be different ways that we are going to choose. To motivate our children. So when we speak about motivation, we need to be very clear on what the goal of motivation is, because not all motivation is going to get us to that goal, which is the will to act. As we'll see in a moment, there's going to be negative motivation and positive motivation. And we're going to unpack whether or not negative motivation is going to be capable of getting a child to actually fulfill the the mission. Or, perhaps, positive motivation. And if we do go with positive motivation, we really need to define the exact nature of the positive motivation that we're trying to create. Okay, Daniel, what was, uh, what was your question? My question is, is, <clears throat> is it a little harsh of say the parents they when it failed, after kids decide
1: that they, they don't buy into the mission?
0: When I say failed, I want to be clear. I, I'm not saying it in a, in a, in a, in a judgmental way. But more in like, you either made the sale or you didn't, right? And as if I'm tasked, let's say I have a job and I have to make a sale and I didn't make the sale for a myriad of reasons, right? Maybe they just didn't want to buy. So that's, that's not necessarily my fault, but I didn't fulfill the mission. So as parents, our mission is that the child should take upon themselves this mission. That's what we're trying to do here. We're not just trying to raise happy children. We're not just trying to raise wealthy children we're trying to raise Jewish children and to be raised as a Jew means that you've been macabre on yourself that mission so if we if we employ parenting techniques that don't get us to that end so then yeah we didn't succeed right. any other questions? yes Elon can you
1: clarify what negative?
0: Excellent. That's exactly the next thing I wanted to discuss. So, when we speak about motivation, there's going to be negative motivation and there's going to be positive motivation. Let's first speak about negative motivation. Okay. First of all, negative methods, right, may be, they, they may be um, in the short term, it may look like you're successful, but as we'll see in a moment, it, it's not true motivation. Okay? And here's why. Because if I use negative techniques in order to in order to make someone do something, then I failed in the in the very premise of what it is that we were trying to achieve. Let's go back and get our definition straight because this is a it's a deep point. It's not so hard, but it's a deep point. Remember that motivation is about will. Okay? So as the parent, we want to tap into the child's will. That's our goal. Okay, so if we use a negative technique so that the child will perform, we have failed in our basic mission of tapping into the child's will. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it goes like this. If I tap into the inner will of a child, then there are enduring effects, okay, Because, basically, what we're looking to do is we're looking to invest in the child a particular will that goes with them. Okay? That goes with them wherever they go. Negative motivation is not going to do that. Okay? And here's why. Let's take the following case. Okay? The child is given a task to do. Okay? And they ignore the task. Okay? So, uh... Let's pick on someone here for a second. Let's say Aryeh Weber. Are you with me? Okay, let's say Aryeh Weber's parents tell him that uh, we expect that in school he's going to get at least a 90 in uh, on the regents, yeah? And Aryeh basically ignores his parents, doesn't uh, doesn't take school seriously, doesn't do his homework, doesn't study. His parents have hired him a tutor. He doesn't take the tutor seriously. And as a result, he gets a 75 on the test, Okay. So Aryeh has not paid attention to the mission <clears throat> that his parents have set out for him. How, have, how do the parents respond? Okay, so as I see it, there are three approaches. Okay, approach number one is do nothing. Don't respond at all, do nothing, right? And here, the hope in this, in this approach is basically the child will ultimately figure this out on their own. Okay? The child will figure it out on their own. Time will go by. The child will grow up. Eventually, he'll outgrow this way of being. And then, God willing, he'll be successful. Right? And at first glance, that may seem like a good idea. But there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Okay? And that is this. Every interaction between a parent and a child is a learning opportunity for the child. So what does the child learn when the parent says, this is the goal, and then the child absolutely ignores the goal? What does the child learn? So the child learns to disregard the parents. The child learns that they can act defiantly and that there'll be no consequence. So it may very well be true that when that kid goes to college, he will take it seriously, right? It may be true but there have been other lessons very negative lessons that have been learned along the way okay and this is true in high school but it's certainly true as a it's certainly true as a child children are constantly learning and when a child misbehaves and a parent goes okay i I've, I've done what i can so then the child learns that they can act defiantly and they don't have to listen to rules they don't have to be obedient and nothing will happen there will be no consequences that is a very dangerous thing to teach a child, especially when we're trying to raise Jewish children. Because as Jewish, as Jewish children, we have goals. We have things that we're looking to succeed in. And that's going to require a level of performance. If you learn that you can act defiantly, so then you can act defiantly towards your parents, you can act defiantly towards your teachers, and certainly you can act defiantly towards God. Does it make sense, Rabosai? Any questions? Gabriel, this is clear? Okay. Price, this is this is clear? You got this? Okay. Be there. So what's your other what's your other option? Okay? Let's look at the second option. And here Elon, this is where we start getting into heavy negative uh, negative consequences. Negative we call it negative motivation but it's not actually negative motivation it's it's actually uh, in fact quite the opposite okay so here the idea is as follows i can fight my child okay and here are some of the things that we may use to fight the child mental pressure coercion physical force right there are parents that do this i'll give you an example again we're not speaking about anything abusive Shalom. We'll speak about that in a moment, but let's speak just for a second. Let's speak about uh, let's speak about uh, physical coercion. Let's say I am uh, I'm in the supermarket with my four year old child, right? And we walk down an aisle, and the child sees that accidentally the parent has turned into the cookie aisle. See, in Eretz Yisrael, we don't have a cookie aisle, but in America, Baruch Hashem, there are cookie aisles, entire aisles that are dedicated for the various types of cookies that Baruch Hashem we have today in our kosher world. Okay? And the child looks up at you in wonderment, and he says, Dad, look what we have discovered. We have discovered the cookie aisle. And the child looks at you, and you know what's coming. The kid says, Please... Please, Dad, please, can I have a cookie? And you start to negotiate with the child. Like a foolish parent, you start to negotiate. And you say, now, now little, little Ruvain, little Shimon, whatever you've named your child, you know that uh, we had a cookie when we first got here, and we're going to have a cookie, Be'ezer HaShem, when you, uh, when you get into the car, but n- right now we're not going to have any cookies. The child looks up at you and begins to laugh because they know that they hold all the power. And so what do they do? What do they do, say They throw a temper tantrum in the middle of the supermarket. And there you are, and it's, uh, it's Friday, you're shopping for Shabbos, and your four-year-old child is sitting on the floor of the supermarket banging his hands and stamping his feet and screaming, I want a cookie. So option number one is give the kid a cookie because you're being embarrassed in front of the Jewish community, and you know if you're embarrassed in front of the Jewish community, you may your children may never get a shidduch. That might be the end of your life. You know people will talk about it in shul. Did you see? Did you see what? Uh, what can I pick on? Did you see what Baker's kid was doing in Gourmet Glot? Right. Did you see uh, what was going on over there? Right. So option number one is just give him the cookie. If you give him the cookie, you reinforce the behavior. Option number two, pick the kid up. You just physically lift the child up. Now, that doesn't sound so crazy to you guys, right? Because it's like, the kid is having a temper tantrum. He is little. I am big, right? This is the advantage of being a parent over a four-year-old. You lift the kid up, and you put him back in the car, and you say to the kid, right, with a very stern face, now you're not getting anything. And you, and you, and you point... Right and you're very aggressive, mentally coercing the child into silence. Now, first of all, it may very well be a game that you lose. The child may scream anyway. But let's let's say that you were successful. Let's say the child is actually now docile and quiet in the shopping mart while you're now shopping, and the child gets no cookies. Right? What is the negative impact of the physical coercion? of the mental pressure that you've exerted on the child. So, number one, obviously it goes without saying, but of course we have to say this, because if we don't say it, then chas somebody might misconstrue here. If we're speaking about physical abuse, right? If we're speaking about physical abuse, the impact on the child will be exceptionally deleterious. So first of all, abuse destroys children. It, it, it destroys their self-esteem. It doesn't allow them as they get older to be capable of being in healthy relationships. They develop nervous habits. They stutter. They bedwet. They don't know how to, they, they don't have the confidence to engage in friendships. So, physical abuse is a terrible, terrible, evil choice. You are a parent. You are in a position of power. The child is in a vulnerable position. Physical abuse is a terrible choice. Okay. We're going to assume for the purposes of this year that none of you are going to grow up to be physically abusive, okay? Having said that, there are other other problems with this negative form of fighting the child, exerting that mental pressure, that coercion, using the physical force. Remember, our goal is not that a child should perform out of fear, right? Right? We do not... Remember, what's the whole goal of motivation? Go back to that initial definition. I told you it's going to come up over and over again. Motivation is the will to act. That's what motivation is. It's the will to act. So if I force the child to do something, and now the child does it out of fear, they're sitting in that shopping cart, and they're totally docile, but they're not doing it because they've chosen to. They're not doing it because they want to. They're doing it because they're terrified of their father who just yanked them up off the floor and put them in the shopping cart. So you failed at the fundamental mission that you were trying to succeed. The goal here was to be motivational, to to get the child to a point where they want to do it. If you've coerced the child into doing it, so fundamentally you failed at what you were trying to do. And therefore, what happens when you remove that fear from the child, right? The child now grows up And they don't have a fear of their parent because they're no longer four years old, right? Now they're 16, 17, 18 years old and the child has realized, hey, there's nothing that my dad can do to me. He can't pick me up. He can't, he could scream at me all he wants, but honestly, I don't care, right? At that point, the child will simply relinquish their obedience because honestly, the only reason I was ever doing it was out of fear. And by the way, we see this a lot, right? People are growing up. The only reason they're serving God is some misplaced sense of fear. Now they've grown up, they get a little smarter, and they go, I don't know if I need to fear, like that childish fear that I had when I was little. And then they start asking themselves the question, do I really want this? And the answer to that question may very well be, no, I don't want this. And since they don't want it, they're not going to perform. That's number one. These negative type of what's called these negative type of interactions with your children fail in the basic mission to get your child to want this, to claim it as their own. Another one, the child will learn not to value your goals. If the child sees that the relationship with the parent is is built on um is built on, you know, the, the parent has to coerce me into doing something, right? So then that's probably not a child that's going to ultimately grow up and say okay you know like these are the things i want to do why would i value the goals of such a person okay another problem you won the battle and you lost the war okay because what you've taught the child now is that coercion is a is a is an acceptable tool so now what does the child learn okay you coerce me now i'm going to coerce you and now you've entered into a power struggle with your children. And here's, here's the thing you must know. You as a parent, you will lose that power struggle. Because you will have to go to exceptionally horrific methods in order to win that power struggle. And as the children get older, older by the way, you have less and less control. And therefore, your, your methods of coercion need to become more and more draconian. So take for example the kid who's khutzbidik to his parents, okay? Which it goes without saying a child should never be khutzbidik to their parents. They should have tremendous gratitude for everything that the parents have done. Let's say a child is khutzbidik. When they're little, you can send them to their room. That's a method of that's a like okay, there's a negative consequence here. There's a coercion, this a, a level of coercion. Now the child gets bigger, what are you going to do? At some point, you're going to start taking things away from the child, and now these methods become, not only draconian, they become foolish. You were chutzbedek, now I'm taking away your phone. You were chutzbedek, now I'm taking away your laptop. Right Now the child gets a little bit older. Right, You were chutzbedek, you can no longer live in my house. Get out of my house. They lock the door on the child, the kid is outside. What exactly is the end goal here? What, what, what do you think is going to happen? At some point, you're going to lose your relationship with your child. It's just a matter of time until that child learns, hey, if you want to be coercive with me, I'll be coercive with you. And the kids are smart enough to know that they will win a power struggle. The child will lose terribly also because now what's going to happen is that child is going to grow up and do the same thing to the people that are in their lives. So even though as a parent you may have won that particular battle, ultimately, you will lose the war. Your child will become someone who engages in power struggles. Here's another one, right? If you teach your children that level of intolerance and disrespect, what do you think your kids are going to grow up to do, right? So now let's say this kid who grew up in an environment where there was constantly these negative interactions. Now the kid grows up, he's 18 years old, and he comes to Mivasaret for the year, yeah? I'll tell you what it looks like. In the dorms, he, he can't live with other people. Nobody wants to be around him. He's constantly getting angry and yelling and getting upset. And when things don't go his way, he's he's uh, he's verbally abusive. And he's and he's you know he shuts he shuts off his roommates and nobody can speak to him. The madrichim are brought in. The Avbayat is brought in. Eventually, it comes to me. These kids grow up and very often they are going to display those same tactics that they saw what their parents do to them. They're going to do it to the people around them. And this is going to get in the way of them developing meaningful relationships. Last but not least, to preserve pride and identity, the child develops a protective shell. Every single person needs to have an identity, right? That's the fundamental challenge that we're all engaged in. We need an identity. So when our identity is attacked, and make no mistake about it, when a parent is doing that physical and mental type of coercion, the child feels under attack. And so the child will develop a protective shell because it's really painful to be in a it's really painful to be in a situation where you as the parent, I'm sorry, it's where you as the child, it's really painful to be in a situation where you as the child feel you're under attack. And so you have no basic pride. And so what happens is that the children will develop a protective shell and that will look like different things to different people. That might, for example, mean that the child becomes self-centered. Totally narcissistic. Because they don't know how to take for themselves in an appropriate way. It may be that the child develops anger management issues. It may be that the child becomes a loner. And they're not, they're not capable of being with other people. A child may turn to food. Right? A child could turn to drugs. A, a million things a child will do to protect their identity and their integrity. So even though you can win the battle with what we'll call these negative motivational methods, even though they're not truly motivational, as we pointed out, ultimately, you're going to lose a lot more than you gain. Okay, let's pause here for uh, some questions because that was just a long haul. Aaron Tachman
1: so let's say as a parent you find yourself – like you're starting to see there is a power struggle starting and developing. Is there a way that like you could get out of it or once like you're kind of already developing that kind of power struggle where it's you against your kid, it's kind of like you're already in it now you just got to like fight through it?
0: No, <laughs> don't double down on your mistakes, right? If you're in a power struggle with the kid, don't say, well, now I've got to win, right? Because the more you win – the more your child loses, right? It's uh many years ago when my wife was uh, in seminary. One of the teachers in her seminary told her a great line. They said you could get into a fight with your husband and you could win, but then you'll be married to a loser. Right, and nobody wants to be married to a loser. The same thing is true when it comes to parenting. Kalakavod, you could win the uh, you could win the battle, right? You could you could come out as the winner, right? We got into a power struggle. Now I have to win then your kid is a loser. So that doesn't help. What we can do is we can, and this is difficult, no doubt, but we can, with great focus and attention, we can change the dance. And that might be really weird for the kid at first because he's so used to that negative motivation and the kid doesn't know what to do with himself. He's like, all of a sudden, his parents have this different way of being. But depending on the kid's age, you may even be able to have a... uh, you may even be able to have a what's called, you may even be able to have a great like a great dialogue with the kid about uh, you know, about exactly this point, about like, you know, we, we felt we were entering into a power struggle with you, and uh, that wasn't a healthy thing, you know, we own that, and we're really trying to do things differently. Of course, with a younger child, they won't understand that, but if you change the dance, and we're going to talk a lot about what that looks like over the next 20 minutes, if you change the dance, then yeah, absolutely, you could uh, you could have a phenomenal impact on the relationship.
1: Is that is that? I feel like that could also show the kid some sort of like a like oh my
0: parents are surrendering because they don't want to have to deal with me. I think that could backfire. Like yeah. as as its nature, like I I might think
1: that if that happened in my case.
0: And and so that might be the short term loss, right? Because the kid may say, "Hey, it was a power struggle and I won," right? But then over the course of the next years, as in your planting all of those positives that we're going to speak about, I think, I would hope, that the child would ultimately give up that paradigm and recognize, especially as they get older, hey, my parents have a different way of being now. They're no longer doing that yelling, you know, threatening, you know, all those negative, and I'm not saying there should never be negative consequences, but the negative consequences have to come in a totally different way, right? There is an appropriate time to say, hey, that was a negative behavior, and here's the negative consequence. But if it comes from a place of coercion, then that's not going to work.
1: So, so when when things are like, I was like the example of like a, a, a very rebellious kid. So, like in those kind of things, like if a kid, if like your kid is going out and and getting drunk every single night and going to parties and doing things, whatever, I feel like with those kind of kids that specifically, there automatically is a power struggle. Because those kids most likely aren't just gonna like if you go to them and say hey listen you like, you gotta stop doing that like they're not gonna be like oh yeah
0: you're right I'll stop yeah but like <laughs> you're right so, about yeah, that yeah. yeah exactly so but then it, but if you start like punishing them then it automatically becomes a power struggle
1: who's gonna who's gonna fight back
0: harder right and your punishment is probably not gonna work at that stage anyway right because the kid is let's say 17 years old he's going out every night he's drinking he's partying he's going crazy the parents say. Don't do that. And he goes, <laughs> what are you going to do to me now? Right? And he walks out the door. Right? So now, literally, this is what the father's going to be left with. All right. Well, I changed the locks and I'm not letting him in. <laughs> you had to go that draconian. Right? Because what were you, What? what else did you have? I'm no longer letting you have the keys to my car. Okay. I don't need the keys to your car. I'll call my friend. I'm taking away your phone, right? At some point, this becomes ridiculous. Okay, I'll pay for my own phone. Where are you going to get money? I'm going to drop out of school. I'm going to go work at Chickie's so that I could have a job, so that I could pay that money, so that I could have the phone, so I could call my friend to get to the party that I wanted to go to to begin with, right? In this power struggle, the parents will lose only if the child realizes that he is more powerful than the parents. And even if he doesn't realize that, let's say, at 17 or 18 years old, He's gonna realize it at 21, 22, 23. and when the child says, "You know what? I don't really want this," and they leave the parents' house, then they're gonna do all those things anyway. All right. So, so, how do you how do you like get
1: out of that? Like my yeah. kid that's bothering his siblings or whatever, like and those kind of things that cause problems in the house. Like, that, okay, fine, he can sit down with them and be like, "Hey, listen, like all these kind of things," and say, "Let's try to like change things." But when when the, when that when this kid literally just doesn't care about anything like there is no parental like power at all that's right that's right so how do you how do you kind of work your way out of that or is that it's just like one of those situations where it's lose? loose
0: no 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 I, I think you can work your way out of it in fact i have here um a whole section on obedience and the challenge of children who are incapable of mo- of obedience and what do you do in that situation so we're gonna get there I do think that there are that there are meaningful ways to respond. It's an important issue. Aaron, thank you for bringing it up. Ellie Schiffschlita.
1: Um. So, how would you recommend um handling that situation in the supermarket?
0: Oh, good. We're gonna get there. That's that's we're we will be there in a couple minutes. All right. But I'll tell you, one thing, Ellie. I could say to you right now, right? The motivating factor in that decision of what to do with the child in the supermarket is not going to be based on the looks that we're getting as people are walking by us in the supermarket, right? Because we have to have enough of a sense of self to be able to say, okay, you know, like, my kid's having a temper tantrum, and that's normal, and that's human, right? And you as a parent who might be sitting there judging me, right? Your kid also did this, and it's not. And if they didn't, it's not because your kid is better, right? So we're not going to make the decision from the fact that it's... Weird to be looked at as that person, right? That so we can agree to that. We're yeah. gonna focus on what does the child need in that moment. That's gonna be our focus. Any other questions? But say there. Okay, moving on. So now. Oh, Sorry. there's
1: a quick question. Yes, David. So how does one balance that power struggle with, I mean, I'm sure people asked already, but I'm the parent, yet I'm also, um, I mean, you can't give in every time,
0: and you can't not give in, I don't know. Yeah, no, uh, again, the, po- the point here is not a question of giving in or not giving in, right? That's not what, guys, that's it. It's a very important point that David is bringing up. The topic is not, should we give in or should we not give in? The topic is, what is our approach towards motivating the child to getting them to accept this as they want right doesn't mean that we have to give in but there's a general approach of how we're motivating our children right so it's a it's an excellent point that you're bringing up david okay let's let's go right there because i think things are going to be become a little bit clearer somebody else had a question okay but there. let's uh let's let's go on because i think things will become a little bit clearer as we move on okay Let's talk about positive motivation for a second. As we said, motivation means the will to act. Okay, And this requires us to tap into that inner will, as we said. Negative motivation doesn't really tap into that inner will. Okay, When a person taps into that inner will, there's enduring effects. Okay, And here's what I mean when I say enduring effects. That's where we left off before. What, is, what does it mean to have an enduring impact. Remember that the Pasuk says, Chanoch l'nar al-pidarko, right? Educate the child according to his ways. Gam lo yasur mimena, right? Educate the child according to his ways so that even when he gets older, he will continue on this path. So when you tap in to the inner will of a child, okay, and you say, and and you're able to get there and say, okay, This is what you want. And the kid has now accepted that in the future, right? So then in the future, they'll be able to call upon that inner drive and be able to say, okay, this is what I want. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah? So how do we do that? So let's let's speak about a teenager for a second, even though this is, you know, not necessarily always the case, but let's speak about a teenager for a second. Let's take the following example. Imagine for a moment that you're the CEO of a major company, okay? And as the CEO of a major company, most of the people in upper management, they're with you, okay? They, they're, they're highly paid. They've become upper management for a reason, right? So they're capable of, you know, of motivation, so to speak, right? They're, as, they're there. They're with you, right? They're not going to be unmotivated. Then you have your middle managers, Your middle managers are more or less motivated too. Your middle managers more or less get it, right? Again, they're climbing the ladder. They want to get to that upper management spot, right? They have their jobs. They do it well. What do you do with the guys in the warehouse, right? How do you motivate them, right? They're minimum wage guys, right? And they're doing their job, but they're not exactly motivated. They're not working at maximum capacity. What do you do to get those people, right? The lowest people on the totem pole, what do you get those people to be to you know to do to be motivated so here's the classic thing let's create an incentive program let's create an incentive program right if you can do x amount of work and x amount of hours over x amount of days and x amount of weeks then you're going to have an employee of the month award you're going to win employee of the month you're going to get a $25 you know gift card to Amazon and it's going to be amazing right so even if you made the incentive program really good, right? Ultimately what would happen? Ultimately what would happen? Rabosa, what would happen? What do you think? Stop
1: caring at a certain
0: point? Yeah, and it's, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a little ridiculous. In my it, it seems to me it's gonna be a little ridiculous. It's not really gonna last, right? Because like well, you I, up the prize every month. Oh. Oh good. So now what's so what are you left with? So you're left with okay these guys are used to getting now $10,000 a month bonuses that's not going to work for the company. So really what we need to be doing and this is a hard thing to do but really what we need to be doing is we need to um we need to explain to everybody in the company why the company exists. Right? So for example if you're working in a warehouse, right? And you're just, you know, shipping boxes. So it doesn't really matter to you what you do. You're just shipping boxes. But if you knew, for example, that you were shipping medical devices that were going to a third world country that were going to be saving lives, right? So that might be a different experience for you, right? Now you're not just shipping boxes. What are you doing, Rabosai? You're saving lives, right? You're a part of a process. So what can we do to motivate people? motivation comes with understanding the mission of why I'm doing this to begin with, right? And teenagers will tell you this. They'll be very honest with you, actually. They'll say, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know, like, what I'm doing here. Like, what's the value of me being here, right? And so what we need to do, and again, different kids on different levels, I'm just taking teenagers because it's an easy one. When it comes to tapping into a kid's will, They need to know why they're doing it. They need to know what the mission is. If you want a kid, in their inner will, to accept upon themselves the mission of Judaism, you have to be prepared to teach them what is the mission of Judaism. right? So if you're only teaching halacha, and you're not teaching hashkafa, don't be upset when the child turns around and says, I don't know why I'm doing any of these things. So what we do when we teach halacha without teaching hashkafa, guys, you know what that's like? That's like coming to a restaurant, showing someone a menu, and saying, isn't this delicious? And the kid would say, I don't know if it's delicious or not. I know what's on the menu, but I don't know if it's delicious because I haven't tasted the sweetness of it. Right? You have to have the experience of actually eating the food to say this is a delicious or not a delicious restaurant. So if we want to motivate a kid, right, let's say a teenager, we have to give them an experience that they understand the mission and that the experience is a valuable one. So it has to occur on two levels. Number one, when a kid asks, why am I doing this, right, we have to be prepared to educate our children to know why they're involved in this mission, right? And you have to be able to clearly articulate that, guys. And, it's, and, and of course, it's going to be at different levels. But you will see that sometimes a smart kid, even when they're very young, even maybe nine or ten years old, will say, does God really care if I keep Shabbos? You might get that question. And you have to know how to be age-appropriate and to answer that question, different levels for different kids. So that's really important. And furthermore, the experience of actually living their Judaism should be one that's in consonance with that mission. In other words, let's say I'm teaching my kids Hilcha Shabbos, okay? And now I'm not just teaching them Hilcha Shabbos, but I'm also teaching them why we keep Shabbos. What's the value of keeping Shabbos? What did the Rebun HaShallam want with us keeping Shabbos, right? So you have to have, first of all, good answers to those questions. Because if your answer is something like this, Shabbos is a beautiful time for a family get-together, your kid may wake up one day and say, you know, Gentiles can get together also. And they don't need to not keep stay off their phone for 25 hours to sit together and have a family meal. I know plenty of Gentiles that get together and have a family meal. So you have to have good answers. But if you have good answers, which is great, but your Shabbos table is not a motivating experience. It's not an enjoyable experience. Right? Then you've, you may have taught them about Shabbos, which no doubt is great. But why would that child be motivated to keep Shabbos? But if a child sees what Shabbos could really look like, whoa, that's amazing, right? If they experience the awesomeness, the power of a Shabbos, who wouldn't want to participate in that? And by the way, so many talmidim when they come to yeshiva and they go to their rebbeim's homes for Shabbos and they see not just their rebbeim but they see different homes throughout Israel and they see these beautiful Shabbos tables that are filled with zmiros and divrei Torah and the sense of warmth, right? And not just any warmth, but like a shabbos of warmth, you know? And there's something like really special happening at the Shabbos table, a level of connectivity. The kids come back to yeshiva. We see it every year. They come back to yeshiva on Sunday morning. How was your Shabbos? And the guys go, it was amazing. I never had a Shabbos experience like that before. I never, I never tasted that sweetness of Shabbos. I would want my Shabbos table to look like that. That's what I want my Shabbos table to look like. They didn't hear a sheer about Shabbos, they experienced it for themselves. So, if we want to motivate our kids, we have to tap into that inner will. Sometimes it's going to be intellectually, and sometimes it's going to be experientially. Yes, David Perlman Shlita. Does Rabbi have a Hashkafah, Shabbos, Hashkapa
1: Sefer that he recommends that we, to read at the Shabbos table?
0: Yes. Yes, you know what the Shabbos hashgufa sefer you should read at your Shabbos table is, which one? Whichever one your family needs. So I'll will tell you exactly what I mean. Yeah, um.
1: We might not know what
0: we need. Yeah, you will because you're going to be paying attention, right? You're gonna you're gonna be paying. Yes, yes, he is on a swing set. Yeah, you're gonna be. It's a long story. Yeah. Okay, yeah. you're gonna be. I'm watching my sister. Okay, good. Shkoyach. So you're gonna be paying attention to your kids, so you're gonna know what they need. So for example. My wife and I, we were paying attention to our kids and we realized that there was a lot of Lashon Hara going on in the house. And so we chose for a year. We went through Hilchus Lashon Hara every single Shabbos. Just a couple of minutes at the Shabbos table. That was a beautiful way of teaching our kids Avat right? But I'll tell you a story I heard many years ago. I won't say the name of the Gadol, but there was a particular Gadol whose child did not follow in his ways and far from it. Okay? And he was a very well-known God of the Torah. In fact, he was, he was certainly one of the G'dolei ador. And so his child really didn't follow in his ways. And years later, he was asked about running a Shabbos table. And he said a very powerful thing. I, was, I read it in the Sefer that he said it. And if it's true, I'm shocked to hear that he was that vulnerable. But he said, the mistake that I made at my Shabbos table is I learned Rambams at my Shabbos table. Because this was such a Gadol B'torah that what he enjoyed was a good pilpul in a Rambam. You know, if you have a Rambam that contradicts another Rambam and you're a brisker, then that's like the greatest thing in the world, right? And so he was, he was trying to bring the excitement to his Shabbos table by bringing up a difficulty in a Rambam. But what he needed to be doing, this Gadol B'torah said, is he should have been singing Shabbos miros, and he should have been telling stories of tzaddikim, and he should have made it a warm environment rather than making an intellectual environment. And so you have to know what your kids need to have that experience. And by the way, we see that it's true, right? A kid, a, a kid could be in school all day long, he could be learning all the halachas, all the gemaras, he could be learning all that stuff, but what gets him excited? When he comes to NCSY Kolel for the summer, and he has an unbelievable summer with unbelievable madrichim, and all of a sudden he's motivated in his Judaism. What changed? The experience changed him. A guy comes to yeshiva and Eretz Yisrael for the year, and now Torah is not just a subject... But he sees it's kihem chayeno, and he gets accustomed to sitting in a base medrash. It's a motivating type of experience. I will say any questions. Shlomo Sakani Shlita. Shlomo, unfortunately, I can't hear you. Yes. Shlomo, unfortunately it's breaking up and I'm not capable of hearing you. I'm sorry. Wanna take one last shot at it? Okay, anybody else? Any last questions? Shlomo, it looked like it was going to be a good question. Don't feel bad. I'm sure it was going to be a good he question.
1: You write it. Why can't you write
0: it out on the chat? Yeah, Shlomo, you want to write it on the chat real quick, or is it too long? You know what, Rabo You know what, Rabosai? Let's stop here for today. Be'ezer HaShem will pick it up next week, Wednesday. Rabosai, have a wonderful Shabbos.